Today's podcast is brought to you by the 2020 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Register now at AllianceNet.org. Stay tuned after the podcast for more about what may prove to be our most popular conference ever. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thank you for joining us on Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined, as always, by my friends Amy Bird and Carl Truman. And we want to talk a little bit today about a subject that I believe we've addressed a couple of years ago, and periodically uh, it'll come up at, at least as a part of a larger conversation. But given that this is something that if you're involved with or a member of a Reformed or or Presbyterian Church or Reformed Baptist Church, you're going to see at some point, or at least hear about, and that is the the, the issue of church discipline. Uh, historically, um, one of the one of the marks of the church has typically uh, been understood, along with the preaching of the word and the right uh, administration of the sacraments. Uh, very often, a, a third mark is is uh, is mentioned, and that is uh, discipline. Uh, the church is to um, exercise proper discipline um, uh, of, of its uh, of its members. Of course, uh, the word discipline and, and discipleship are both uh, th- these are connected words because our you know the discipline of the church is not merely to be seen as something negative, but as a a, a means by which I am discipled um, uh, through uh, the uh, the fellowship and the ministry of my brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. But I, I want to begin before we kind of get into some of the um, uh, issues of, of purpose and some of the practical implications to start out first of all with the um, the biblical justification for church discipline Carl and Amy and to talk a little bit about I mean obviously we go to Matthew chapter 18 we go to first Corinthians chapter 5 but for people who come out of Christian traditions that don't really have a category for church discipline which is probably most evangelicals in the United States um, who've never seen church discipline exercised, they might see this traditional, historic, biblical practice and be really offended by it. What gives you the right to remove someone from the church? And of course, church discipline does not always issue in excommunication. The hope and the prayer is that it won't come to that, but it sometimes does. And so that's going to raise, and it does raise questions in a lot of minds of evangelicals the first time they see it of wow this is judgmental and who gives you the right uh, you know to kick someone out of the church how do we answer that sort of objection what is the spiritual rationale for the church holding that kind of authority well i think the first thing i'd want to do is address the the word itself discipline mm-hmm. we do live in cultural times where the word discipline has strongly negative connotations. So I want to start, Todd, by doing pretty much what you were doing at the beginning, and that is setting the notion of discipline within the context of discipleship and seeing it as, if you like, the 
the harder edge mm -hmm. of an overall Christian discipleship. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I think I would then want to point people to the fact that, that the purpose of the church is discipleship, and that involves encouraging. It involves allowing people to develop their gifts, to help people, to aid people grow in their holiness, in their love for the Lord and their love for each other. And the, the one side of that is, is the encouragement, if you like. The other side of it is appropriate warnings and applications about where the boundaries might lie, things uh, that one doesn't want to say or think and do. Mm -hmm. So I'd want to present discipline as part of a, an overall positive package right. designed to, to shape the character and to fit it for heaven. Then I think I'd also want to, to disabuse people of the idea that it's a cult-like thing. I think another right. of the reasons why people are rightly worried about church discipline is the way church discipline has been abused over the years, both by the Christian church. I mean, we all know the stories from the Middle Ages of excommunications being fired off left, right, and center simply as part of political games. We've all, many of us, you know, read books like Silas Marner, where a poor yeah. guy is sort of run out of town by the church, or the Scarlet Letter. Mm -hmm. So there are these sort of boogeymen images of discipline that are in the back of my mind. I'd, I'd want to disabuse people of that by reminding people of the limitations of the church's power and the limited nature of what the church is doing when it disciplines somebody. Uh, when you excommunicate in a Presbyterian context, we're not making a definitive statement that that person is going to hell. I think what we're saying is the way you speak, the way you behave, gives us as elders no grounds for believing that your profession of faith is valid, and therefore we are making a provisional judgment in order to warn you and onlookers that this way of life is incompatible with the Christian faith. But the church is only ministerial. There's no power beyond that which the Word gives it, and it's not making a judgment, an absolute judgment on behalf of God, as right. would have been claimed by the medieval papacy, for example. We are simply making a ministerial judgment on the evidence uh, that is put before us. Right. And that is, that's authority that the Lord Jesus has entrusted uh, to his church through the ministry of, of the elders with the accountability of the entire congregation. That's, we would say that is authority because both Jesus and the Apostle Paul called the church to exercise this kind of discipline to the point of excommunication if necessary, yeah, yeah, yeah. we understand that that is authority that the Lord Jesus himself and then through the apostles has entrusted to the church. It's also Amen. pastoral because you know, you're given this authority for soul care. Right. And to shepherd that person that you're disciplining, hoping to bring them back. Mm -hmm. But also the people that they're probably offending, right, right. Um, you know, their soul needs cared for as well. Mm -hmm. And there's the one side where people have seen the church be heavy handed and um, abusive with, with this. Yeah. But, and if that's a bad witness for Christ, but then there's also the other side where people look at the church and they see nothing ever being called out yeah. as mm -hmm. sin. And then, it, you know, oh, there's, it's just a bunch of hypocrites in there. You, right. you know, that's what they see. And I think the latter is more likely the problem we have in reformed evangelical circles in the United States. I don't think there's much evidence of 
catastrophic abuse of church discipline being a widespread phenomenon in North America. Because so few churches practice it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do see some of it, though. I mean, it's oh, definitely it, alive oh, and well it, in the Reformed it, Church. It, it, absolutely. It I'm saying it's not the primary problem. Right. It can happen. It's just that so few evangelicals belong to churches that actually practice church discipline. The, the larger and more common problem is the, my life is none of your business. So, you know, buzz off. And so the, the pastors, the leadership, the elders of the church, what have you, um, are really functioning more in a role of kind of providing services for the congregation. But, but any idea of accountability to one another and submitting to the discipline of the church is unknown, I think, to, to the majority of American evangelicals. So we, we see this, again, church discipline as, a, as an important mark of the church, exercised under the authority that Jesus himself has entrusted the church. For what purpose then? And, and we would say that, uh, I mean, coming from a Reformed tradition, we look at the scriptures and see several uh, purposes to church discipline. What are they? I think in the OPC, we would summarize them as, as threefold. Same in the PCA. Yeah. yeah uh, one, vindicating the name of Christ. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's behaving, you know, if some guy's beating his wife up mm-hmm. or he's playing away and sleeping with somebody else's wife, disciplining that person is a way of pointing out to the, the watching world that we don't put up with this kind of behavior because it dishonors the name of Christ. Right. Second purpose, I think, is protecting the innocent. Yeah. If a woman's husband is cheating on her, and the church turns a blind eye. And I've known a situation where a woman was cheated on, abandoned by a husband, who then remarried, and they've continued to worship in the same church. Wow. When that goes on, what you're doing is you're sending a message to the innocent mm-hmm. that they don't really matter. Yeah. And the third, and, and sadly the, the least effective, I think, purpose of discipline is to reclaim the offender, obviously. Mm-hmm. We don't engage in discipline because we get a kick out of beating people up. Right. We, you do it with a desire to, to win the person back. Sadly, the fragmented nature of the church today means if you get discipline in one congregation, you drive over to the other side of town and you may even find a church in the same denomination or a sister sure. denomination that will take you in. So I think really it's the first, the, the reason we do church discipline, practically speaking, is the first two reasons. Yeah. On the whole, we hope that the third works. But right. I mean, Amy, have you ever have you witnessed church discipline where the third I have purpose um, actually works? Yeah, I have. Oh, years ago, when we first started going to our church in West Virginia, an elder was excommunicated for adultery, hmm. and um, I was able to see him be restored back to the church. Truly restored, mm-hmm. uh, became good friends. Actually, it's marvelous. Yeah. 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 And to his wife and everything. Oh, right? that's great. It's beautiful. Yeah. 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 I've seen it a couple of times. Again, it's, it tends to be the exception, unfortunately, rather than the rule, but I have seen it happen. It's glorious when it happens, but mm-hmm. you know, Carl, your point I think is valid. It's, it's rare. Yeah. Um, and I think you, that's why you need to grasp those first two, because mm-hmm. if you, if, if your primary purpose is to reclaim the offender, you're just going to give up. 
Right. Because it's probably not going to happen. Right. And it can also make you very cynical when you, you know, I look back at the discipline cases we had when I was pastoring, one of whom just swanned off to the other side of town and, and joined a, another church in a sister denomination. Because guess what? He continued to plead his innocence. And of course, yeah. that's always a sign of really being innocent when you continue to claim innocence. <laughs> um, and you can get really cynical and say, well, it took hundreds of hours. It took a lot of sleepless nights. It took a lot of personal abuse to get that done mm -hmm. why did we bother and then you remember well we did it because i want to stand before the lord on the day of judgment right, and say, right. you know that behavior lord that brought shame to your name mm -hmm. we didn't tolerate it on my watch mm -hmm. at other church mm -hmm. maybe they've got explanation to do here but we didn't tolerate my watch mm -hmm. you see that wife over there who was abused by her husband we didn't tolerate that mm -hmm. we dealt with that we you know he wandered off and went to another church somewhere else but we dealt with that mm -hmm. because your name mattered to us and that woman yeah. mattered to us. Yeah. Maybe we could, because we're talking about some pretty heavy stuff, but maybe it's worth talking about like, what is it that is worth stepping in and disciplining? Mm -hmm. and, and what is that process then? Yeah. You know, wh yeah. What do you do before you get all the way to excommunication? That's a great question. You do yeah. an awful lot. I right. Say. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, really, you really, and what is it, what is worth, you know, yeah. taking it all the way that yeah. far. Yeah, that is that is a great question, and that's that's a key question actually. And once you pull the trigger on formal discipline, it's it's hard to get the bullet back mm -hmm. in the barrel. Right, and and that <laughs> takes on life of its own. Yeah, and that's why that's why unless it's something that's involving an immediate emergency, you mm -hmm. try to take your time. Now, if there's an emergency, if mm -hmm. if someone's safety is involved, or if there's any criminal activity, if there's a kind of mm -hmm. immorality that is going to publicly scandalize the name of Christ and the name of his church immediately, you know, other than those super. Or if it's affecting somebody some else uh -huh, right. in a really hurtful, harmful if, way. If, if there's abuse going on, yes. Reputation uh, but, or something like that. Right. Too. And so anything that threatens the peace and the purity of the church mm -hmm. that threatens to, to publicly scandalize the name of Christ publicly threatens to um, uh, uh, harm the witness of the church of Jesus Christ in the community, um, anything that is illegal, you're not going to discipline someone for um, having a different opinion on a matter that does not threaten the church's orthodoxy, um, or at least you shouldn't. But anything that really threatens the peace and the purity of the church, um, that any, anything that is illegal, you know, you have to step in to, and, and, and the first thing you do is you go to the, the offender or the accused and you, you do some investigative work. You know, I mean, we, we call it in our book of church order, um, you know, an investigation into Christian character. Um, are these things true? Has this happened? And uh, if there is real sin there that is threatening the peace and the purity of the church or harming someone, um, then you appeal to them to repent. Mm -hmm. and, and if they refuse to repent, then, then the process has to become formal at that point. And, you know, we, we have a series of appeals that we go through with, with the person, um, mm -hmm. a series of formal appeals. And we do several of them, again, for their sake. Um, we don't just give one formal appeal. We go through several, hopefully with them meeting face-to-face -face with a, a commission of the session, several representatives of the session to sit down with them. Rarely are they willing to do that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. There have been a few occasions where the person has been willing to, but usually they just put a hand up and say, I don't have anything to say to you. 
And by that time, they, they've are, they're already not attending the church anymore. They're either, and either they've abandoned the faith or they've got, started going to the church down the street. At that case, then, uh, they're disciplined for, a, it's a word called contumacy. It, it means a stubborn disobedience. They've refused to repent and they've refused um, to cooperate with their shepherds, the elders, to bring about repentance. But the, the process has several layers to it. It's laid out in the book of church order. And again, unless there's an emergency involved or someone's safety or a crime being involved, mm-hmm. you don't want to rush it because part of what you're trying to do is plead with this person and help them see their sin. Isn't there a step, um, and I don't know if this is in the PCA too, but in the OPC, like we have that step before you get to excommunication where you bar them from the, the yes. Lord's table. Yeah. Yes. We have a stage where you can, you can suspend somebody from the Lord's table for a fixed period of time. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's incoherent. I, I disagree with that because it seems to me if the person's repented, they should be at the Lord's table. If they haven't repented, then you can't set a timetable for that. Mm-hmm. You suspend mm-hmm. them indefinitely. And in the OPC, that would have to be reviewed within 12 months. But they remain members of the church at that point. And I think I'm right in saying that in two of the three discipline cases I was involved in when I was a pastor, we went that route first before mm-hmm. excommunication. Because mm-hmm. you hope that the, the person then will continue to sit in the church under the preaching of the word, right. under the, one of the means one of, of the grace, means of grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it will will have an impact on their heart and, and transform them. Right. Um, and again, I think one doesn't want to act in discipline in a way that harms the innocent parties. But with that proviso, I think one wants to move as slowly and as gently as one can in discipline in order to try to, to win the person back. Right. Uh, but given the case that one has to vindicate the name of Christ and protect the innocent first, though you've mm-hmm. got to take those into account. But once those have been taken into account, uh, I think the, the indefinite suspension should be the normal route to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the OPC, it effectively gives that person another 12 months. It's a public act in the OPC. Mm-hmm. They're, they're publicly suspended right. from the Lord's Supper. It's not done behind closed doors. Right. It sends a clear message to the watching world and to the innocent parties in the congregation that we are taking this very seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yep. We are looking for substantial change on this person's part. Right. And one of the things that we have done, um, it's, it's typically our practice, is that when there is an innocent spouse involved, let's say there's an issue with adultery and the offended spouse is there, we take pains to communicate really well with that offended spouse to say, look, unfortunately, she's, she's not repenting yet, as you already know, or he's not repenting yet, as you already know, and, and here's the steps we're going to have to take. And so far, thankfully, the offended spouse has always fully understood this and felt very affirmed by the session, by, by us making sure that they're fully informed of what is going on, that they're not caught by surprise by something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that brings an issue, and you, you kind of brought it up earlier, Amy, in terms of just practical implications. It, one of the things you have to do in this is that oftentimes when, when an issue of church discipline comes up, um, there are victims that are affected because typically sins that, that, that harm the peace and purity of the church aren't small kind of individual trifles. Mm-hmm. They're, they're things that, that have done real harm to real people. 
And so oftentimes what happens is, is that as you're moving a person through the process of church discipline, and let's say it's going towards excommunication because the person's remaining hard-hearted, you know, it takes a lot of energy to, to do that. And if you're not careful, you might end up ne- neglecting the, the, the victim, the offended spouse or the damaged children or something like mm-hmm. that. So as a part of that process, I would the urge... The offender who's getting all the attention. Right. And as a part of that process, I would urge sessions to, to appoint a, a committee of maybe two members of the session and then have them get some helpers with them or organize a committee around them to really focus all of their attention on, on the offended persons, the, 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 the spouse, the children, or, or what have you. That's helpful. Um, and and that, that's, that would be really important. I would urge sessions to do that. How about, how about this, y'all, uh, just in terms of practical implications? Because this is always asked mm-hmm. in an issue when church discipline comes up. Okay, so that was my friend. I understand it was legitimate to discipline them. I get it. They're my friend. What do I do now? How, do, how am I supposed to treat them now? You know, can I go out to dinner with them? Can I have a conversation mm-hmm. with them? You know, how have you seen that handled? What, what do you think? Very tricky. Yeah. I mean, just based upon what, what Jesus and Paul said, you know, there's strong words, you know, treat them as yeah. an outsider. But then what does that look like? Mm-hmm. I suspect it looks different. In a, this sounds like a cop out, but I think it looks different in, in, in every circumstance. I agree. I mean, the, I, I've come across situations where we're not just talking about a friend, talking about a son or a daughter, right. or a right. brother. Mm. And those are real tough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, my pastoral instinct at that point would always be to err on the side of charity mm-hmm. uh, and not have a kind of, to, to call for a you know, Amish-type shunning right. <laughs> of the individual. But on the other hand, to make it very clear that when, when you interact with that person, you've got to interact with them in a way that makes it clear that you don't think they're, they're a believer anymore. You're mm-hmm. not doing any favors in... Yeah, I had a very difficult situation with one of my mentors when I did a pastoral internship who later left his wife and committed adultery and ran off with this other woman and kept sending me chatty emails. And, mm. and finally, I had to write to him and say, you know, I'll always regard you as a friend. I'll always regard you as somebody I learned a lot from, but you need to repent and go back to your wife and ask mm-hmm. for her forgiveness. Never heard from him again. Yeah. But there came a point there with even with a good friend, I said, you know, we're kidding ourselves here that, that this has not made any difference. And, and right. I have a moral duty to, to speak up at that point. Yeah. yeah. I take yeah, no pleasure think, in saying that. I right. think that um, as, you know, being, if you were the wife or the children of that person, it's got to be painful to see, yes. mm. you know, them just continue on in their friendships that you maybe had shared as mm. well mm. and pretend like that's still the same person. Right. Yeah. I remember having a conversation with a lady, actually a couple of ladies who who were friends with a woman that had to be excommunicated over just some very, very obvious sins and her refusal to abandon the family. It it was really tragic. And, you know, these, these women loved her. They, you know, they, they had been close friends. They were shocked and heartbroken, but, you know, they communicated to her, we'll be here for you. You've got our number. If, if you ever want to talk about these things, if, if you ever are ready to rethink what you've done, you know, we're here for you, but it, it's changed. Our relationship has changed because yeah. you're our friend and you've done enormous damage to your husband and your children and you don't seem to mm-hmm. care about it, you know, and that's hard for us to, to treat you like a, 
like, like a good buddy mm-hmm. when you've, and I've had the same conversation with a man who did the same thing to his wife and kids. I, I can't be your friend because I'm not friends with people who crush their children. Yeah. It's hard. Were my exact words to him. Mm-hmm. I can't, be, I'm not friends with people who crush their children. It's One hard. last yeah. thing I wanted to um, maybe discuss is just the importance and uh, role of being a, an actual member of a church as we're talking about discipline. Right. Um, you're putting yourself then under the care mm-hmm. of the elders mm-hmm. and uh, you're aligning yourself to your confessions mm-hmm. and you know, you're putting yourself out there to be cared for, but you're also able then to say, you know, if you are being offended seriously mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a way that you can't resolve um, right. that you need, you need help from your elders and you're a member. Right. You're a sister, yeah. you're a brother. We would talk about maybe doing another podcast on this, but also then, with partaking in, in the Lord's Supper as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think membership is a little bit like nationality. You know, it, gives, it brings both privileges and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm a British citizen. If I misbehave in America, then I can call on the help of the, the British embassy right. uh, mm-hmm. to help me out. I can't call on the help of the American embassy if I go back to Britain and misbehave mm-hmm. as a British citizen. <laughs> and I think non-members need to realize that well, I mean, there are a couple of things I'd say about that. One, the whole idea of not being a member of a church is complete nonsense. To me. Mm-hmm. Membership doesn't appear in the New Testament as a word, but then neither does the Trinity. And what's described practically yeah. can only be accomplished oh, yeah. with normal membership. Yeah. I mean, we had people at Cornerstone who wouldn't join because, you know, they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to tell them to do, join the church. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's a very well-meant mm-hmm. argument, I'm sure, but it's complete completely bonkers so you should be a member and secondly that that does bring protections and privileges Mm -hmm. it does mean that you can call upon the elders to help you in formally help you in difficult uh situations yeah and you can appeal yourself too if if, if you feel like you're being falsely charged absolutely Mm -hmm. provides you with protections Mm -hmm. um i would say that it's sort of riffing off that a little bit that it's also good for the the elders to realize that they have that they create the ethos in the church by Mm -hmm. and large i think Mm -hmm. and they need to create a welcoming ethos yes in terms of not sending out you know i'll give you an example i had a young man in my church want to tell you something and he's told me he said i was at a party the other night and i bought a joint and i smoked it Mm. this you know pot was not legal at the time etc etc uh now, what did I do? I said, look, don't do it again. Right. I wanted to say to him, don't do it again. And if you do, don't tell me about it. But I just <laughs> said, don't do it again. You know, I'm not going to pull the trigger on formal discipline. Right. I'm not going to parade that man. The more right. serious level is a situation where there was an adultery in the congregation and it wasn't widely known. And we decided as a session that we could talk to those involved and they repented mm-hmm. privately before the session. Mm-hmm. And there was no need for us to go yes. public with right, that because yeah. it would have brought, particularly would have brought humiliation on the wrong spouse, which right. would have added to their suffering. Mm-hmm. So uh, in sort of thinking about membership, I think one of the ways that elders can take responsibility is run the church wisely yeah. Yeah. in a way that allows congregants to know mm-hmm. they're safe under your uh, paternal care. Yeah. And, and I would also say it's good for elders for, for ministers to mention certain common sins from the pulpit mm-hmm. and make it clear that if if you are 
struggling with this or you're on the receiving end of this, you can come and talk to the elders without fear of, I I think it was David Powlinson. uh, I heard him say, you know, you need to mention spouse abuse in the pulpit. Yes. Because unless you mention it from the pulpit and make it clear that people on the receiving end of it can come and speak to you in confidence, none of them ever will because it's too shameful. Exactly. Too shameful. And lo and behold, within months of me starting to do that, I had somebody mm. knock on my door and say, I got a problem and I need to talk to you. So yeah. I think the elders need to take, uh, need to be very proactive yes. in in making the church a place that people want to belong to. They should belong to it, Mm -hmm. but we're only going to get them as members if they also want to belong to it. Right. And that, that, that comes with, with leading with a gentle hand, not a hard hand, but a gentle hand, which is firm in the face of unrepentant sin and sin that damages others, but is gentle. And yeah. And I love the example of there's an issue of adultery, but there was repentance and it didn't have to be broadcast. Yeah. Because there yeah. was repentance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so, why I, I always yeah. found it in, at seminary when a student would say to me, what would you do in this pastoral situation? My answer was always, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because every situation <laughs> is, a, right. is a unique set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you've got to go before the whole congregation and point out, you know, basically put a red A on the, on, on the guy's mm-hmm. folly for mm-hmm. the whole congregation. Other times you need to keep it within a, a tight, Yes. Closed knit community in order to protect right. the innocent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's helpful. Hey, can I ask? I know we're running out of time. I just had one more quick question. The person who, who, who is disciplined, excommunicated for unrepentance, they've remained unrepentant and they've fled to a neighboring church. Do you warn that church? Mm, yes. Good yes. Yes. Okay. And shame on them if they pay no attention to you, yep. particularly shame on them if they belong to your own denomination or a sister denomination Mm -hmm. and choose to ignore the courts of the church, shame on you. I agree. And I can tell this is personal for me. This is personal for me. (laughs) (laughs) I, 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 I agree. If you think you know better than the men who've sat and listened to hundreds of hours of testimony, Mm -hmm. then you're not a good Presbyterian. Right. You know, Amy, it's almost as if Carl might have an experience along those lines. Just a thought experiment, man. Not thinking Possible. of no, neither were any animals harmed in the program or any of the people referred to uh, uh, real. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> hey, well, it's been, uh, I think this is, actually, I think we should probably revisit some of the issues mm-hmm. here. I, mm-hmm. I think Amy's question about membership at the end there is particularly pertinent. And yeah. we've done that before on programs, but I think we need to explore that one again. I think it would be also worthwhile at some point discussing, you know, what sins rise to the level of discipline? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if uh, I'm driving along and and somebody in a car, you know, makes an obscene gesture at me because I've cut them up and I recognize them as a member of my church, do I discipline (laughs) them? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that we have to be careful in in knowing that the sins that merit discipline, I think they're few and far between, actually, Mm -hmm. thank you. We're all sinners, but not everybody should be disciplined all the time. Right. So right. I think we should revisit this and, and various mm-hmm. issues in, uh, in future programs. Mm-hmm. We do hope that you've uh, enjoyed being with us today. Uh, please uh, visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. And uh, we are a listener-supported podcast, so if you'd like to continue listening to 
Mortification Spin, you'd like us to continue uh, doing this, please uh, feel free to make uh, a donation through the donation button there. And also enter for a chance to win a little book. I think we've given it away before, but it's, it's a small book, but worth its weight in gold. And that's Ken Golden's Presbytopia, what it means to be Presbyterian. It covers more than the topics we've talked about today. It's much more wide-ranging. But again, I think church discipline has to be set within the context of thinking about the church and the gospel as a whole. And mm -hmm. Ken's book there is a wonderful argument for gospel churches, church membership, and the judicious use of church discipline as part of ongoing Christian discipleship. So please enter for a chance to win that book. If you don't win it, buy it. It's a really good book. Mm -hmm. Buy it. Give it away to your mm -hmm. friends. In the meantime, all that remains is for me to thank you for listening uh, to us today and say we look forward to being with you again next week. Stayed in bed all morning just to pass the time There's something wrong here, there can be no denying One of us is changing or maybe we've just stopped trying Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. For the first time, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology will focus on a single book of the Bible. Plan now to join Philip Ryken, Derek Thomas, Joel Beakey, and others for Revelation, the Sovereign Reign of the Exalted Christ, March 13th through the 15th in Grand Rapids, and April 24th through the 26th in Philadelphia. This long-awaited conference may prove to be the most popular to date. Register now. Select events at AllianceNet.org to sign up online or call 1-800-488-1888.